one in Revelation, Revelation 5, the action pans into the one sitting on the throne, and he holds in his right hand a scroll, which is sealed with seven seals. And we learn that upon those seven seals is written God's plan for making all things right, his plan for bringing everything to fruition that he has planned for this world. And so then in Revelation 6, the Lamb, representative of Jesus, comes and begins to open those seals. And so you see Revelation 6 through 8, he starts opening the seals. Remember the first four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then 5 and 6, and then there was a break in the action after the sixth seal was broken. And remember in, in Revelation chapter 7, we had this question, who can stand? As God's kingdom comes, as there's this clashing of kingdoms, as God's judgment comes on evil in the world, the question is, who can stand? And Revelation 7 had two visions that both answer that question. Remember we looked at the ceiling of the 144,000 and in this vision of those who follow the Lamb, who are before the throne day and night, who have all their tears wiped away by the Lamb. And so the answer to who can stand is those sealed by God, the people of God. And so then the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, then seven angels appear before the throne that have seven trumpets. And we saw last time that they begin to blow their trumpets. Um, trumpets one through four also go together, sort of have uh, natural disaster consequences. Trumpet number five was different in that it had demonic forces at play instead of natural forces. And then after the sixth seal is open, again, we have a break in the action. And there's a question, again, that is answered by two visions, just like we saw before. In Revelation 10, there was the vision of the angel with the little scroll that we looked at last week. And this week, we're looking at the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And these two visions answer this question. What is it that we, the people of God, those sealed by God, what is it that we are to do as God's plan is worked out on the stage of history? That's the question that these two visions answer. This is a tough passage of scripture here in Revelation chapter 11. It's tough because it's full of Old Testament references and images, and if we don't know our Old Testament, we don't recognize them. But even for those who know their Old Testament, the images from the Old Testament are taken and they're changed. And so even if you're familiar with them, when you see how they're changed, that's what you're supposed to pick up on and see the point that God is making. To give you an example... Um, I will let you use, I see there's some students of the word here today, and so I will give you permission to use, you can only learn this here, you can't learn this anywhere else since I have developed the little Miss Muffet method of studying these images of scripture. So let me show you how that works. If I were to tell you, little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey, then what would you think is going to happen next? A spider is going to come down beside her and frighten Miss Muffet away, right? Because you're familiar with that image. You know this, this picture. You have it in your mind. You have an idea of how it's supposed to go. This uses familiar images to those who are familiar with the New Testament. But what God shows John in these visions is he'll say something like this. Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. Down came a spider and two cockroaches. 
And the original audience says, wait, that's not what the vision, that's not what's supposed to happen. That's not what it says before. And so by recognizing the Old Testament image, seeing how it's changed, focusing on the change to see what it is God wants us to learn from the way that he has changed this Old Testament vision, that's what you have to do. That's the key to Revelation chapter 11. So we'll be applying that as we go through the text, um, as we look at those things together. So let me read Revelation 11 verses 1 through 13 for us. I will pray for us and then we'll dig in. Hear now God's word as John describes the vision that he saw in heaven. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there but do not measure the court outside the temple leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We better pray and ask God to help us to understand these crazy images that he has given us in his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are confusing images for us. And so I pray that you would open our minds and give us understanding of these words that you have preserved these thousands of years for your church. And I pray that you would open our hearts, that we might receive the word that you have to say, that we would walk in your ways. And I pray that you would use these words. To, to give great confidence, to give great hope to your church, and that we would indeed be about doing the things that you have for us to do as we wait on your kingdom to come and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Please come and do that, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Maybe you've noticed before, a lot of folks are one of two kinds of people most folks are they're either doers they like to get things done and then there are more thinker theoretical types and they're satisfied with just thinking about what needs to be done planning the work organizing it thinking about the most efficient way but if they never really get around to doing anything it's okay for them because just thinking about it is enough for them 
And meanwhile, doers get really frustrated about that because we want to get things done. We want to get things accomplished. I see some folks elbowing each other. I won't comment on that. Well, listen, theoretical folks, there is a lot to think about and debate, and you will love Revelation 11. But don't let that keep you from getting to what it is that it gives us to do. Doers, you're going to get really frustrated with this because you're ready to do something. And we're just trying to figure out what it says and theorizing about it. So hang with me. We'll get to some application soon enough. But just remember those two things as we dive into the text. Let's look there in verse 1. John is given a measuring rod like a staff and told to measure the temple of God. And the first question we have to ask is, what temple? Because the physical temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. In the book of Revelation, these visions are being given in the 90s A.D. And so the physical temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. So it doesn't seem that John would be instructed to measure the physical temple. I suppose it could be a heavenly temple. We saw one in Revelation chapter 7. You can see it at the end of this chapter in Revelation 11 and verse 19 where we're told then God's temple in heaven was opened. So it could be a reference to a heavenly temple. But verse 2 of the text tells us that the court outside the temple is going to be trampled by the Gentiles, by the nations for 42 months. And I don't think that's something that's going to happen in heaven. So it doesn't seem like this is a reference to the physical temple in Jerusalem, nor the heavenly temple that is referred to in Revelation. So what is the reference here? Well, I think by this time in Christendom, it has been established that the new temple, now that the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, that the new temple is the people of God. I think probably most clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, Do you, and that's a second person plural, so do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, you all, are that temple. He makes a similar statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, where he says explicitly, we are the temple of God. Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 also has language and imagery pointing that the church is the New Testament physical or is the temple of God that his people that that it would be who his temple would be at this point in time now that begs the question why measure the people of God why would we do that well we need to use our little miss Muffet uh, method here at this point and we need to recognize that this is an image from Zechariah chapter 2 where the prophet Zechariah sees a man who's been giving a rod who's going to measure, in that case in Zechariah 2, Jerusalem, the city of God, not the temple of God. But he's going to measure the city, and the prophet asks him why he's going to measure Jerusalem. And at that point, God promises his presence with and his preservation of his people. In Zechariah 2, in verse 5, God says, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So John is to measure the people of God, so to speak, because God plans to dwell in our midst as a wall of fire, and as God dwells in our midst, we are preserved. Well, why would measuring us do that? What's the connection there?
of it like an inventory. If I want to keep a good account of some things that have been entrusted to me, I want an inventory. I want to count them. I want to know what it is that I'm responsible for. So that's what God is calling for, that this group of people, his temple, would be well known to God in number and in name so that he can protect his people. Now it's interesting in verse 2 it says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. What's going on there? Well, their outer court was the area where everyone could come in, Jews and Gentiles. So even those not numbered in God's people were able to come into the temple courts. The altar of the temple, that inner part, was where only the priests could go. So God seems to be saying here in verse 2 that he will protect his inner sanctuary where his new priesthood lives, his new priesthood made up of Jews and Gentiles who have been sealed by God from every tribe, nation, and people group, and that God will protect his new priesthood, but those outside of that number, those who are not part of God's people, would not be protected by God because they're not measured. So either those people will be converted to the people of God or they will experience the judgment of God as it comes on the earth. And it says, if you keep going in verse 2, that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Wow, what do we do with that? That's a number we're going to see in many different forms here in Revelation. 42 months is the same length of time as 1,260 days that we see in the next verse, in verse 3. Uh, that would be 42 months. If each month had 30 days, 42 times 30 gives you 1,260. So those are the same period of time. It's also the same as three and a half years that's mentioned in the text. It's also the, the same as what we'll see later, a time and times and half a time that we see in Daniel and also here in Revelation. Uh, so what is it that this means? Well, 42, as the other things here in this chapter, is a symbol. It's not a literal statistic. And the number 42 is actually quite prevalent in the Bible. With the students that we have here, I am sure that, that many of you are thinking of these different times you see 42 in the Old Testament. Let me mention a couple. Um, did you know that Moses kept an account of all the starts and stops that the people of God uh, end up going through as they leave Egypt and go to the promised land. And you can read in Numbers chapter 33 that the number of those starts and stops would be what number? What do you think? 42, right. So that journey from bondage and oppression to the promised land is 42 units. Another place we see it in the Bible, Matthew arranges his genealogy of Jesus so that it has 42 generations from Abraham when God calls a people to himself to when God visits us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so here in the text, we see that 42 months seems to be symbolic for that whole period of time that the new temple, or God's people, are under the pressure from the nations. See, it says they will trample them in the holy city for 42 months. It's that time between the 
first coming of Jesus, that first Christmas, until the time of his second coming. It's the whole time that the church is in the world, caught in this crossfire between the kingdom of this world, which is passing away, and the kingdom of God, which is coming more and more into this world. And I think 42 would be a good symbolic number for that, if you think about it. If it it was the number of starts and stops that the children of Israel had as they left Egypt in their oppression and bondage to the promised land. You can see the analogies for the time that we're set free from our sin by the finished work of Christ on the cross until we reach the promised land, which is a new heavens and a new earth. It also makes sense with the number of generations, as Matthew did, that it was 42 generations until God called the people to himself and Abraham until God appears that it would be 42 units of time that would take place between the time that Jesus frees us from our sin until his next appearing. So that seems to be what his number is, and my doers are just fading on me at this point. Oh my goodness, this is so symbolic and theoretical. What difference does this make in my life tomorrow? Well, very much indeed. Because what God is saying here is that he will preserve and he will use his church in this time between the first coming of Jesus at the first Christmas that we celebrate until Jesus comes back. Remember the original audience that is receiving this letter that John writes down this vision for them. They were a persecuted minority in the Roman Empire. The apostles Peter and Paul have been killed by this point in time. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. Timothy has been murdered. The Roman emperor is demanding that people make the confession that Caesar is Lord. The apostle John has been sent into exile on the island of Patmos. And it's into this setting that God gives John this revelation to give to the churches. So imagine those churches. Imagine that we are meeting together in hiding. And we've heard the teaching that Jesus said that the kingdom of God is coming, but when we go out these doors, it sure does seem like the kingdom of this world is what's in charge. And we've been taught to say the confession that Christ is Lord, but when we leave these doors, it sure does seem like Caesar is Lord. And to people in that kind of a situation, they have to be asking the question, will the church survive another generation? They're probably not even asking the question, will God use the church to make a difference in the society? If we are honest with ourselves, we ask those questions too, don't we? We go outside these doors and we see what the world is like. And we wonder to ourselves, will the church survive another generation? We hesitate to think that God could use the church to make a difference in the world around us because the church is not very popular these days. It's alienated people. We've lost good leaders. Many churches have bad theology. The church seems anemic. It seems to be fading away. People, Even people who are interested in spirituality or may even talk to you about Jesus don't want anything to do with the church. And we begin to ask, will the church survive another generation? And we hesitate to even imagine that God would use the church to do do big things. And it is to people like that original audience and people like us that God gives these crazy images. Why? 
It's to help us see the unseen spiritual realities, to see what's going on behind the physical world that we see when we walk out of these doors. And if we can be aware of the unseen spiritual realities of the present time, then we have the courage to endure the powers of this dark age and follow Jesus above all things. That's why God gives these visions to his church. That's why he's preserved them these many years for his people, for the original audience. To all outward appearances, the situation looked hopeless. Who of them would have imagined that the church would outlive the Roman Empire? Yet as we sit here, we read about the Roman Empire in history books and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ continues to meet and survive to this day. But God not only preserved that church, he used them and grew the church and changed things until even in a few hundred years, the Roman Empire was known as a Christian empire because there was a, an emperor who claimed to be a Christian. Historically, empirically, God has used these visions to help his church survive and to change the society around them. So the bottom line is this. Listen to me. Do not give up on the church of the living God. God does amazing things in and through his church despite the physical realities that we see around us. We must be aware of the spiritual realities and to know that God is with us and will preserve us and will use us to accomplish great things. Now, if you're a student of Revelation, one of the things you're waiting to get to is verse 3 and who these two witnesses are because there's a lot of debate about that. There's been a lot of ink spilled about who are the two witnesses in verse 3. Let's do this. Before we say who they are, why don't we look at the description of them and see what they do and see if that helps us to determine who the two witnesses are, right? So let's do that together. Verse 3, God says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So these two witnesses have authority. They belong to God. He says they're my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. What does that mean? Prophets speak the word of the Lord, and in this case, they speak it into a hostile culture. And he says they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which we have already defined as that time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And they do so clothed in sackcloth. Now the image to the original audience would be this. If you saw somebody clothed in sackcloth, you would either think, number one, this person is a prophet, which we already know that they are because we're told that they prophesy. And the second thing you would think is, well, if they're not a prophet, there's somebody who repents. Because it was only people who repented that were in sackcloth and usually ashes. So these are a repenting people, a people who declare God's word to the hostile culture around them who are living lives of repentance. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Oh my, what does that mean? Again, images from the Old Testament. In Zechariah 4, there is a picture, there is an image there, where the prophet sees a lampstand with seven lamps and two olive trees. Well, that's different. Well, we're in our Little Miss Muffet scenario now, right? 
So what happens in Zechariah 4 that gives us insight to what's going on here? Well, to the two olive trees, there's one on each side of the lamps, and to those olive trees, God speaks in Zechariah 4. And God says to the two olive branches in Zechariah 4 and verse 6, he tells them, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so we take from this vision that these two witnesses who prophesy from the time Jesus came until he comes back while living a life of repentance, that they do so not by their own power, but by the Spirit of God who comes and works in and through them. Now they're called two olive trees, also two lampstands. Where have we heard lampstands before? When Revelation 1 through 3, Jesus refers to his churches as the lampstands. So these two witnesses, these two olive trees, these two lampstands seem to me to be the church. They're giving authority by God. Christ certainly gives authority to his apostles and to apostolic preaching, those descended from them who declare what the apostles declared, who live lives of repentance, who prophesy or speak the word of the Lord into a hostile culture by the power of the Holy Spirit from the time Jesus comes until he returns that's who i think the two witnesses are now that raises lots of questions for my students i'm sure you have a lot of questions let me deal with a few of them the first question is why two witnesses if there's one church then why are there two witnesses well some folks say that the two olive trees the two lamp stands the two witnesses that it stands for the old testament people of god and the new testament people of god so the new testament of god from every age maybe that's what it is i think it's more likely to think of it in this way to understand that the legal standard for something to be sufficiently established, that it must be established on the testimony of two witnesses. That's the Old Testament example, if you think in Deuteronomy 17 and again in Deuteronomy 19. But it's mentioned in the New Testament as well. Remember Jesus in Matthew 18 says, if somebody sins against you, go and show them uh, his sin just between the two of you. And if he doesn't listen, then what? Take two or three with you so that the matter may be sufficiently established by the testimony of two or three witnesses because that's the standard for establishing something in the Bible. I think also the Apostle Paul, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, Timothy, don't even entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by at least two witnesses. And so I think the idea is, is that for a matter to be established, it has to have the testimony of two witnesses. So the image here is that the two witnesses in Revelation means that the testimony of the church is sufficient and that the word of the Lord will be sufficiently established by the witnesses of the church. Now, why are these not two literal people? I read a lot of folks that say this is Moses and Elijah, and I definitely think there are references to Moses and Elijah here. Some folks look and say it's Enoch, you know, who, who never died but just ascended to heaven, and it's Lazarus. People named the two people. But to me, I, these two people, the two witnesses, are just symbols, and here's the reason why. We've already said the temple in verse 1 is not the physical temple. It's a symbol for something else, the people of God. We've already said that the 42 months, that the number is just a symbol, that it's not a literal period of time. 
that the olive trees, that the lampstands in verse 4, that they're symbols. Everybody agrees that the beast in verse 7 is a symbol, that there's not a literal beast that comes out of the bottomless pit and oppresses people, that it's the Antichrist, that that's a symbol for the Antichrist. The city in verse 8 is clearly called symbolic, right? If you look in verse 8 where it talks about the great city that's symbolically it's called Sodom because of its immorality and Egypt because of its oppression where the Lord was crucified because it signifies those who would kill Christ, Christ killers, those who want to kill him or his legacy. But it's said that the great city is symbolic, so it's just hard for me to look at this and say the temple's a symbol, the olive trees are symbols, the lampstands are symbols, the beast is a symbol, the city's a symbol, the numbers are symbol, but these two people, they're literal people. Tough jump for me to make. I think that they're symbolic of the people of God. What about the fire and the plagues in verses 5 and 6? Can the church do that? Well, I think those are symbols too. Because through Elijah, God used calling down fire and the power to prevent rain as confirmation that Elijah spoke the word of the Lord. And through Moses, God turned water to blood and other plagues as confirmation that the word Moses spoke was God's word. And I think what he's saying is God will do through the church what he did through Moses and Elijah, that he will confirm the testimony spoken by the church that it is the word of the Lord and he will vindicate his message and overcome the enemies of his people. What about the beast in 11.7, overcoming them and killing them, and then they come back to life? Well, you can read more about the beast in Revelation 13, where he's revealed to be the Antichrist. He comes and he kills the two witnesses. Their bodies are left in the streets. It was a horrible insult in the Middle Eastern society. So the witnesses are greatly disrespected and insulted by the Antichrist. You see their death is celebrated. But it's only for a short time, three and a half days. I think that's also symbolic. I don't think it's a literal three and a half days. I think compared to the time that they prophesy, three and a half years, that the time that they appear to be dead is a short period of time, only three and a half days. And then we get a vision again. Right, The breath of life comes and is breathed into them, and they stand on their feet, which is clearly... A vision from Ezekiel 37, that vision of dry bones where God raises up a people to follow him even when it appears that all of his followers are dead and gone. So this vision means that it may appear that the church will be defeated at times by the powers of this world, but that God will raise up people to serve him no matter what, that the church will never be destroyed even though it seems like from time to time that it may be. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All right, practical folks, I know we've been doing a lot of theory, a lot of symbols. What does this mean for us? Why is this important to us? Well, it gives us confidence that the church will survive hard times, but it also tells us what we are supposed to be and to do as we face this hardship in the world. As we await the second coming of Christ, as the kingdom of God breaks into the kingdom of this world, what are we to be and to do? We are to be witnesses. What do we do? Well, witnesses testify. And what should our witness look like? We should be prophets, those who speak the word of the Lord into a hostile culture, clothed in sackcloth, a repenting people. We should be a people who repent, and that should be the tone that comes with us. 
to get even more practical, here's what I have prayed for you as I've prepared this week. This is what I've prayed for you. That God would give you confidence as the church to speak the word of the Lord to somebody who may be hostile to hear it. That as you're around people in the holiday season, as you're around family, as you talk to them on the phone, as you talk to people that you don't normally talk to, that you would have courage. If the Spirit would prompt you at some point to say, listen, I just I feel led to tell you this. You need to know there is a God, and this is God's world. And the world is designed to work in God's way or it does not work very well at all. And so perhaps some of the brokenness that you've experienced, either from the outside or the brokenness you feel inside of you, perhaps that's because you've been trying to do things in some other way than God's way. And we're inevitably going to feel broken and messed up when we do that. But listen, I want you to know, everybody does that. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. And the problem is because God is holy, 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 and his standard is perfection that we're subject to the judgment of God. But I want you to know there is a way to escape the judgment to come. Can I tell you about Jesus? He came at Christmas as a little baby. But he went on to live the life that we should have lived, always in submission to the Father. He died the death that we should have died so that we can be made right with God. Jesus came to make all things right. He's ushering in God's kingdom. He came to destroy the work of the devil. Even as we say these things, we must say them with humility. We must say them as a repenting people, a people clothed in sackcloth. If we want to see changes made in our family and in our workplace and our culture and the world around us, then we have to be a people who are willing to make changes. We have to be a repenting people. We have to turn from anything that is not God's will or God's way. We have to model repentance to those who are around us so that as we preach a gospel that calls people to repent, they know what that looks like by looking at our life. They have been around us enough that they have heard us say, I am so sorry, I did this wrong. Will you forgive me? I am turning from this to something else. So that we model repentance to those who are around us. Our call for others to repent has very little credibility unless we are a repenting people ourselves. Let me just close with this thought. I want you to know the text reassures us that this type of witness from the church will be very effective. It will be very fruitful. And I see that in the text in verse 13. Look at it with me. John writes, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that doesn't sound like a lot of reassurance to us. But again... Little Miss Buffett, right? If you know your Old Testament imagery, even though this sounds bad, think about the Old Testament. Think about Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees this vision of God and he's called to go and he says, here am I, send me. And God says that he will send the prophet Isaiah. God tells Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and 13 that he's going to be called to prophesy, but God's only going to save one-tenth of the people who hear him, and nine-tenths of the people who hear his preaching will be destroyed. And here in verse 13, 
only one-tenth of the people are destroyed, and nine-tenths of the people are saved. That's the little Miss Muffet. That's the two cockroaches. That's the change. He's reversing the fractions. So that he's saying that the testimony of the church is more effective and fruitful than the testimony of even the great prophet Isaiah. You can see it again in Amos chapter 5 where that one-tenth, nine-tenth is reversed again. That we will be witnesses more effective than Amos. The reference to 7,000 is probably a reference to Elijah's day. Where in 1 Kings chapter 19, only 7,000 had remained true to God and not bowed the knee to other gods. But here in Revelation 7, only 7, 000, and 11, only 7,000 die. And the many who remain give glory to the God of heaven, which is a picture of repentance. This vision shows that God reverses the Old Testament fractions. That because of the testimony of the two witnesses, because of the faithful witness of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit, as we ourselves repent, people are converted. They give glory to the God of heaven. Oh, this is so practical. Please don't leave and say this is not practical. It's so practical. This is what I want you to walk away with. Listen, God is present with us. God will preserve his church. Not every one of us individually. We've seen in Revelation 5 and 6 that there will be martyrs. But God will preserve his church. And God will use his church to do big things for him. So as far as it depends on us, as we live in a hostile culture, as we await the return of the Lord Jesus, let us be faithful in calling people to repent, even as we ourselves are a repenting people, that God would do great things in and through us as his people. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these images that reassure us of your presence and your protection of us. Thank you for this assurance that our, that our witness will be effective I pray for those who are here, Father. I just pray that you would give us opportunities to speak your truth into the lives of people. I pray that we would not be afraid. I pray that we would be confident, that we would speak into the culture, that we would leave the results to you. But as far as it depends on us, we would be people who faithfully proclaim what is true, even as we live lives of repentance. Please come and help us to do that for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing hymn, my very favorite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King.
Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Thanks so much for worshiping with us this evening. I so appreciate that you are here. Uh, let me remind you, remember the next two weeks we will only have a 10.30 service, so no 4 p.m. service on December 27th and January 3rd. Hopefully we'll be back to two services on January the 10th, uh, local uh, prohibitions uh, notwithstanding. So that's our plan, that we will get back together um, on, for two services on January the 10th. Um, don't forget the Christmas Eve service. This Thursday, you still have a chance to participate. We need more people to sing that opening hymn and the closing hymn. If you'll recall from the Easter service, they, we don't hear people individually. It's just a lot of people singing. So I would love to see your face on there, and it would help us out. If you can record that by tomorrow, Lee's going to put together that video for us for the Christmas Eve service. So let me give us the benediction. We'll head out these side doors as has become our custom. So receive now the Lord's benediction, which is his good word to you from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The risen Christ said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.